Hello, this is Work Like a Woman. I'm Mary Portas and we are back. And if you're wondering why we're back, because we are still inundated with stories which really, quite frankly, show that the world of work when it comes to women is still biased. I work for a large retailer. I go back to work this week following a nine-month maternity leave and I'm terrified. In the time I've been off on maternity leave, they have manoeuvred me out of my role and replaced me already. This means that I'm going back to a role that doesn't exist and very little job security. Another email. I had been bullied by a male colleague for many months and after reaching a point that I can't take it anymore, instead of quitting, I thought, no, I am going to speak to the head of HR, who was a woman, and I'm going to file a complaint. She asked me to write out everything the man had done and then she made me sit down in front of him and read it out. Unsurprisingly, I couldn't go through with it. I broke down and I had to leave the room. The whole experience was very embarrassing and painful and I've now left the company. Do you know what gets me about that? That is another woman misunderstanding a woman. Humiliatingly putting them into that position is going to make it better. It's just horrific. One more. And this is from a man. I've been at my company for 12 years without promotion. Was recently told to me, matter-of-factly actually, by my boss. Well, someone either has to leave or die for you to get promotion. Subtext from that is, it's not about your talent, it's not about your capability, it's not about this business being organic enough to work around you and make you feel great about yourself. No, it's either death or leaving. Nice one, that. All these emails, and let me tell you, there have been thousands of them, and I'm sorry if we haven't been able to get back to you all, but it just keeps telling us why we need to be coming back and saying, work like a woman, bringing humanity into the workplace and behaving like decent human beings is the only way forward. This is Mary Portis and I have Emily Bryce Perkins with me and she's been doing naughty things because <laughs> she is with child. I Very am. with child. I was going to say one of us is pregnant and let everyone guess. but Oh yeah, really <laughs> bloody funny that, isn't it, Emily Bryce Perkins? That one went a long time ago. <laughs> let me tell you. Six months pregnant. Oh, that's yes. a nice stage actually, yeah. six months. Yeah. Energy. Not too grouchy. Yeah. What have you been up to? Just got back from Australia. I've been on business out there. Sydney, Melbourne, 24-hour flight. My back's a little bit stiff. But you did a good job for the agency over there. So I was late to the recording this morning because I was on a call with a very important new client that we can't say the name of. Down Under. Down Under. We like the Down Under. We do. So I've been working very, very hard. I've been in the country um, doing, getting the apples, harvesting the apples. Were you? And making jam, blackberry jam. I know it's been months we've been, uh, you know, off. We haven't been sitting on our laurels or whatever you call them. I don't know where my laurels are. Yeah. <laughs> Bet you do, right? You don't with that bump. And But we've got so much information coming through to us and so many emails and so many of you women talking to you about what life experience has been happening at work. But Emily, yeah. what's been happening? What's in the news? What's happening it's now? There's been a lot of news. There's always a lot of news, mm. isn't there? But we're definitely doing the right thing. You know, even th- this week, we've found out that women are paid £260,000 less than men over their careers. So the gender pay gap stuff, by the way, still very much an issue. We still need 260000 We are talking uh, about a house. Enormous, yeah. 
We're talking about, imagine what you'd do with the investment of that. Yeah. It's women in their 50s who are the ones that are screwed over the most as well. That's me. So, That's me, if you'd like to represent. Can <laughs> someone just send in some money, please? <laughs> we'll do an appeal at the end of the show. <laughs> But in contrast to that, there's been a lot, there's been a rise, even with places like John Lewis, with the sort of upcycling, the recycling, people are finally getting on board with the importance of that. Something that Mary's Living and Giving has been doing for rather a long time. 26 shops and counting. 10 years this month. 10 years we've been doing that. Um, What Emily's talking about is that I opened up for Save the Children 10 years ago, my first Mary's Living and Giving shop, where... I thought, why do charity shops have to be down at here? Well, let's make them places that's all about recycling, upcycling, community, getting together and creating commerce out of kindness. That's what we did and made many millions for Save the Children. And it's probably the proudest thing I've ever done with my team at Portas. Yes. I think the kindness thing is so important. That's something we've been thinking about a lot. And one of the... um the news stories that I loved from this summer was a soap company, I might be pronouncing it wrong, but it's Beco Soap, B-E-C-O, and they use their website in the in the kindest possible way. So they said 80% of our staff are disabled, but 100% are brilliant. And they, you know, combined kindness with commerciality, they sold out of soap and we, we ordered some from the office. And I just thought that was a really brilliant way of kind of engaging people and making putting kindness at the heart of your business. It was just soap, but we all kind of need soap, don't we? And I thought, But what was it that they did? So they employ they used, people yeah. who are disabled? Yep. People that um, have skill sets that wouldn't, you know, that would have a hard path getting yeah. into certain careers. And they used selling soap as a means to raise awareness for all of these brilliant members of staff that work for them. So they basically put their staff up on the website with a little bio and you could find out a little bit about each member of staff. And it was just a kind way of recruiting. It was a kind way of selling. Um, and it really took off and also really brilliant design. It just looked like a soap that you genuinely wanted to buy and have in your bathroom. Um, I'm doing a TED talk in about how long? Four you weeks? Are. Yeah, on yes. the kindness economy, which we have... Well, we call it that, the agency, because we try and advise our clients that actually putting people first and planet uh, will make profit come and that's been a real shift away from what commerce has been like over the last 30 years where it's all been about economic growth that's the only thing that counts and we're in a world now where unless we start putting kindness and decent behavior at the heart of what we do we will end up without a planet quite frankly isn't it yeah exactly you know short-term goals think about who you work with what are those businesses like do they reflect what you genuinely believe are the right ways to live and be today? We think that's important. And I'm, and I'm not sitting here from my high you know, pedestal saying, well, I've made my money, so therefore you, know, you should all think about who you work with. But listen, the power is with you, individuals. That's the most important thing. And here's the other thing, I, a stat I thought about. The power of money and spend is mainly with women. So we mm-hmm. should think where we're putting our pounds mm. and what that does to the world and what that does to the planet and what that does to people's lives. Every pound is a vote. Yeah, very good, Emily Bryce Perkins. Get that in the TED Talk. I will, I will. That was our head of strategy who came up with that. <laughs> Bryce Perkins trying to come up and get credit <laughs> Nick for the it. Lines. Share the love. Share the love. <laughs> Kindness. Kindness. So who are we kick-starting Series 2 off with? Series well, two. we have Philippa Perry. Oh, yes. we love Philippa Perry. Philippa, we love We really love you. We really love you. Philippa. We really love you. (laughs) (laughs) Philippa is a psychotherapist, um, an author, and her book, the Sunday Times bestseller, uh, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read, came out earlier this year. And booking this guest had nothing to do with the fact that I'm pregnant. (laughs) 
and I wanted to get oh, loads yeah, of inside information coming, from, yeah. a, from a psychotherapist who talks about family. Um, but Philippa's career actually started out as a paralegal. You wouldn't, you kind of oh. can't imagine her doing that, but she definitely has some excellent uh, stories around that for us to laugh at and also get quite sad about, to be honest. The, the fact is she talks about family, but we talk about business and there's so many parallels across the two of rupture and repair. You know, if, you, if you're mm. having an argument at work, how do you repair that? Same in the family. So, yeah, we've got some, some good stuff coming up. Yeah. But let's go back to those heady days of the late 70s where poor Philippa had to deal with alpha culture head on or knob on. First. <laughs> oh, dear, please let her tell the story. <laughs> In the uh, late 70s, early 80s, when I was in the world of work, there was a sort of Benny Hill vibe with (laughs) with the blokes chasing the secretaries around the, the office. And we sort of took it in that spirit. Well, we did. And it wasn't sort of like, I'm going to report into a personnel department for groping me in the lift. It's, oh, don't get in the lift with Ian on your own. (laughs) And that's really how we coped. And I didn't know any other way of coping with it. But I'd had a particularly long day organising a cricket match between a firm of city solicitors and their clients, a big oil company. All men, by the way. Mm-hmm. Oh, all men, all men, and I was sort of like um, my title was my title was paralegal, but it could have been just dog's body admin yeah. person. They all got quite drunk, and then my boss, who was head of litigation, wanted a lift back to the station because we were near a, in South London somewhere, and he demanded that I give him one because, of course, I had to stay sober during the whole thing, like everybody else was drunk, and um, he got in to the passenger seat and just lunged over and I didn't I forgot about the Benny Hill routine I just smacked him on the (laughs) nose with my fist and unfortunately he just had an operation on his sinuses (laughs) and there was blood everywhere all over his shirt and everything and as I said as I drove away I said I think you were confused about which seat to get into Bill I said as I as I drove away and but I felt myself wanting to apologise, wanting to apologise. That you'd I, been the wrong one. I, that I'd been in the wrong. And I was just, all the time I was driving, I was fighting with myself. I've got to apologise, I've got to apologise. Because of course, I was worried about losing my job as well. And I did apologise. What I find so fascinating, because you are talking about, and, and actually the Benny Hill analogy is so utterly brilliant, because it was, we all watched that as kids, and it was Benny chasing some poor girl. In a bikini. In a bikini. Oh! And there's an old bloke with a wig, they pull it off and pat his head, but it was all about chasing and touching their bottoms, and it was all funny, and this was... This was the social, you know, messages that we were getting all the time that that is the role and this is it in comedy. Yeah. That's it in the office place. When did and how did we get through that? I'm I'm just trying to think that today, did we just suppress the offence or were we just totally accepting? Because that would not happen today. I mean, it would happen I'm not saying it wouldn't, but the response would be very different, I we think. We know now we've got more choices than to take it in the spirit of Benny Hill, yeah. which is a great thing that we do. And it's, I find it interesting looking back over to that story because that's the only one time I snapped. The rest of the time I took all of this in great good humour. But I think it had been a very long day and... I didn't even understand it myself, what I did or why I did that. Why couldn't I just laugh it off or, or, or get out of the car until he'd calmed down or something? 
And um, so I was still blaming myself for it. But actually, I think that was the only one time I did the right thing. But I I didn't know that at the time. And all this stuff that happened to us in the early 80s, late 70s, all this bottom pinching and dancing around in the lift. There was another time when I was told to take some papers to an arbitration in Switzerland and I was told to drive them there myself. And at the last minute, the said Bill, same man, said he'd come with me in the car. (laughs) And um, one of the solicitors said to me, "Um, I know you'll have a key to your own room, but if you've got a chest of drawers or a chair, just put it underneath the the door I said oh okay so I did what she said and he tried to get in and he he conned reception into giving him a key to my room somehow or other oh you didn't wake up with Bill leering over you no 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 I I blocked the door with a chest of drawers like like my colleague had told me to do so that was just another of his little pranks and in the morning it was like oh you got me that time (laughs) okay that was before the uh, cricket incident actually All this stuff that happened to me and happened in more firms than that one, it was it was the sort of norm. I was a pretty person in my 20s. It sort of went dormant. I, I, I became self-employed. I, I did different things. I wasn't in the same sort of office environment. And it was all dormant. I never really thought about it at all until the Me Too movement started. What When was that? Last week? Very recently anyway. And I suddenly realised... That was not okay. But hang on, we're and talking I pretended about it was. I know it's I sort know, of like I'm embarrassed with you because I It's am not till my late fifties yeah. that I realised that yeah. that was not okay. And why didn't I start a Me Too movement when I was in my twenties? Because you didn't feel confident enough. Did you? Did you I, feel confident enough I to do that? Even, I'm not sure I would have been able I to do that. I didn't even feel confident enough not to apologise for yeah. hitting him. Yeah. I think social media's got a big part to play there because it's easier for people to connect now than it used to be. So yeah. I think I imagine back then, how could you? It was only your very small community that yeah. were immediate people around you, and unless they were up for talking about it, it would have been tricky. But now, I, I it was bringing a lot of memories back for me, and even yeah. I'm only 35, but stuff that I went through in my early 20s when the Me Too movement happened I had a real moment I thought oh my yeah. goodness the stuff that I used to sit through and the horrible bosses I had yeah and and again it was you know social media wasn't a thing then and I was thinking I was only a, a little bit before that but I definitely would have been speaking about it and would have been more vocal had I had that platform so I think social media's had a huge impact it did have a huge impact and I didn't realize that I had a choice about it we didn't. No, we didn't. We didn't. We didn't realize. We didn't believe it. But also that conformity. I mean, I don't know how you were brought up, but it is that conformity. Oh, not to wait, make waves. Yeah. Be good. Yeah. Yeah. Smile. Laugh it off. Don't take yourself seriously. Yeah. And I think I was going to. I was going to talk to you about identity because Philip is sitting here opposite me. And if you think I like orange, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to put a pick up. We're going to put a pick up. She's got her gorgeous orange glass, and we both got bobs. Except she's got those wonderful. Who was it? The Malin streak. Do you remember the Malin streak that had the white grey streak? I'm showing my age. It's a book. I will, I'll think of it. I'll think of it. Um, and a bob. We like bobs. Oh, we do like bobs. Um, and she dresses fabulously. But here's the thing. As a paralegal, would you have dressed and felt as confident to dress as you do today? I used to dress... Uh, uh, I used to wear a tie quite often. I used to wear a white shirt and a tie. Cool. And uh, sort of... I didn't wear a man's suit. I'd sort of wear an oversized tweed jacket or something and a skirt. Very Annie Hall. 
Yeah, a bit yeah. Annie Hall, yeah. bit Donna Karen. <laughs> you know, what I the, wished. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> it was yeah, more well, charity shop actually, but yeah, but probably very cool. But no, it's interesting because I know um, Philippa's husband is Grayson Perry. I'm going to ask you something on that in, in a minute. But he wrote about identity and um, he talks about the grey suit, which I thought was really interesting in his book. The primary function of their sober attire is not just to look smart, but to be invisible because there's this kind of business suit gives you this acceptance and a uniform of those who, who, to do, who do the looking and the appraising. And I thought that was a really interesting take on this because I always felt that I had to pare down me, even though I was within the fashion industry and most of my working life was within that, but the board were men, that somehow I had to sort of slightly pare that down to be acceptable. And I just wondered how, within you being in the paralegal work, whether you felt that and when was the time where you thought, I can totally and utterly be me and dress the way I want? I don't think I ever felt that when I was in the corporate world. I I felt I had to cause least offence and fit in. But I would wear the ties. And I just thought, they can't tell me off for wearing ties because they're all wearing ties. Yeah. <laughs> so I had that. I mean, I didn't wear them every day. But well, I, I think they're really sometimes. sexy, a shirt and a tie. Don't you? On a woman? Um, oh, my know. God, I think it's brilliant. Have you seen any I think a lot of that tie wearing I'm for me... I'm not talking about sort of Radcliffe Hall. Look. Yeah, yeah, I'm I know. <laughs> I know what you mean. I think a lot of that sexy tie wearing for me was about I didn't feel acceptable as a woman even. Right. Because I was the youngest child and my dad had already had a daughter and he wanted a son, youngest of two. And so when I, I was a big disappointment. So I tried to be as much like a boy as possible. So I think that was partly behind the ties and the suit jackets as well. Sort of like, look, dad, I'm nearly as good as a boy. Oh, that's so interesting. That's also slightly tragic. It's very tragic. But then that's probably why you went into psychotherapy. Probably. That's um, another thing. No, but also, I think about the time when we were, like in the 80s, I was all into the new romantics and fluffing about, and I loved that. But mine was, that was fine for when I was junior. But when I started to get onto mm. those roles of responsibility and looking like I was a proper director, <laughs> I did feel that I had to, to, to shift the way I looked and, and, and fit in. And I guess today, you know, that is still happening in business. That is still still happening and I think it's a shame if we just become sort of role players playing a role rather than bringing all of ourselves to a role and I think if we dress down we might dampen ourselves down as well so I think it's really important to be fully ourselves and then we can show that in how we dress as well we'll feel more relaxed if we wear the clothes that we like wearing rather than the clothes we think we should be wearing I agree with you completely on this because I, I well, in my book, I talk about this, that, you know, so often we, even the way we talk or we present ourselves in meeting, we feel there's a construct, there's a way of doing that, that it's acceptable. That is, those are the codes of business behaviour. And if you follow those, you're probably going to get to the top. Whereas if you went into a business meeting and said, well, that's shit, I don't agree, probably wouldn't help too much. Uh, but exactly the same with what you're talking about. I feel as if you are able to do that and express yourself without being offensive to someone or an yeah. individual and dress the way you want. Therefore, you really do connect with who you are and it gives you such a power, such an energy. Yeah. In your book on, on children on that, what would you say to 
the parents dressing children? Would you be say, go to the wardrobe and look like you want and do it yourself? Um, I thought it was... It's one of the things I really enjoyed was allowing my daughter to dress herself because she started the craze for wearing trousers and skirts at the same time. As <laughs> She's far pretty as I cool, though. Yeah. But my favourite one of the <laughs> things she did was she was very fond of a Pret-a-Manger napkin that the the chain started round about then. And she had Kirby grips and she'd make a little headdress for herself from a... Pret-a-Manger napkin and I, I said what's that and she said it's my Dutch cap oh. <laughs> she wore it for a week saying it's my Dutch cap <laughs> I, I I think my control went from the fact of um, it's very interesting we were talking about Bob Mortimer who I just adore I don't know if yeah. you've been watching him do this fishing programme I've seen one oh, or two it's, joy. it's, it's just, just absolutely joy it's just about joy. friendship and yeah. kindness between two blokes you know it's just absolutely wonderful but he talked on Desert Island Dis about how his father died when he was seven and he wanted to please everybody and make them care for him. Uh, no, sorry, make them want, need him. And that that is often the case what happens when you when you lose a parent, that you want people to need and love you because then they won't leave you. Or if you get loved, what feels like to the child conditionally, like if you're a good girl, I'll pat you on the head. If you're a bad girl, I won't even give you eye contact. So... You get the idea of, I have to be good, I have to conform, and you can over-adapt and lose yourself in the process. And I think that's what happened to me. Right, talk me through it, because I'm really interested, because I went the other way. Okay, so what happened was, in order to gain approval, I had to do what I was told. And then what gets squeezed out of that is a very basic human skill, which is being able to ask yourself what you're feeling, and from that, work out what you want. And from that, going for it. You might not get it, but at least you know what you want. You can ask for it. If you over-adapt, 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 you, you push down your feelings. So you can't work out what you feel. So you can't work out what you want. And if you carry on like that, you get to a point when you feel lost and you don't even know who you are. And I think that was me. And so Up that, until what age? Well, I still had sort of things like sexual urges and things like that. But Philippa, this is a I know, family show. I know, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, so I got, mar- oh, right. I so got you married. married. I oh, got right. married really, really young to a guy called Chris because he had fantastic cheekbones and he was really good looking. How but old were you when you married? 20. Mm. And I got married because my parents were so kind of like no sex before marriage sort of thing. Mm. And I just thought, oh, I can't. Uh, because that, I mean, obviously I did. Yeah. But, um, you know, the deception gets too much after a while. So I sort of got married and I shouldn't have done because we were young. We didn't know who we were. I didn't know what I wanted. I mean, it, I was far too young. I had that with um, Catholicism, that, like literally, yeah. uh, you know, that sexual, you know, repression and suppression that yeah. you can't do this. And I, I mean, there's lots of things I blame on the Catholic Church. I mean, what a <laughs> patriarchy that is. What a hideous patriarchy. Well, this, well, this was C of E, but it wasn't much better. No, it's not really. much better. <laughs> no. no, it isn't. And it's just an awful thing not to do that to your child isn't it yeah. that you could not be free because that's such an important part by the way and we're, we're talking about this is how free um philippa is with her her gorgeous daughter she's written a book this is flow not perry. me flow perry no, has. I don't, no, no i'm <laughs> saying it oh, she like that's her mother there's <laughs> a me. mother I don't it. <laughs> um, and flo's written this book how to have feminist sex a fairly graphic guide and it will be fabulous. And what a, what a family you are. One of the things that you talk about and I, and I love is um, the power of saying sorry, which I think is one of the most powerful things to be able to do. Sorry, I got that wrong. Uh, 
uh, within business um, and, uh, you know, again, within our business, one of the things that we really try not to, we don't want people papering over the cracks because it's yeah. so utterly stressful. I think the fear of saying sorry comes from children being humiliated for being wrong and being forced to apologise. So it becomes the sort of like, you hit your brother, say sorry, say sorry, go and stand in the corner. You know, it's all mm. very humiliating. Mm. And so because we don't want to feel humiliated, we'll do anything not to say sorry. And then we grow up like this and we have this very childish thing of thinking being wrong and having to go my bad is something that we need to humiliate ourselves about and of course we don't and I was brought up so that I found saying sorry excruciating because it was forced out of me and I found it very humiliating so I thought I'm going to Did do you find it humiliating because you you thought this makes me wrong and therefore I'm diminished or were you finding it humiliating that, yes. because oh because mine would be no I'm not wrong well both of those things okay. both of those things and all of those things <laughs> it. basically not being seen for who you were being thought of as having a terrible motivation when you might just have made a mistake you know that sort of thing so I thought I'll do something different with my child I'm just going to say sorry when I've made a cock up of something so I'd say sorry for little things like oh you said you wanted red peppers and I've given you yellow peppers sorry rather than going, you said you wanted yellow. There's no point arguing about that. You know, just say sorry. And then if I was grumpy or something like that, I'd say, sorry, not your fault. I shouldn't have taken it out on you. And I just carried on like that. And then what really surprised me was when she was about four, she said to me, sorry I was grumpy in the car, Mum. I was hungry. I'm all right now. Oh, that's oh. so cute. Horatio said that to me the other day. Oh. Yeah, it's so you lovely. Learned, wonderful. You learn to say sorry without humiliation when someone has shown you the way to do that. And if we're like that with our children, we can be like that in our boardrooms. And if we teach our children to be like that, they'll grow up to mm. be adults who realise that making mistakes is part of creativity, is part of trying things out, is part of what we need to do. Nobody ever went on a straight line from A to B. We go left and then we correct and go right. When we lose our way on a walk, we have a look to see where we are on the map and we retrace our steps and we try a different direction. There's nothing wrong with making mistakes. It's not something we should feel humiliated about and we shouldn't humiliate others for making mistakes either. And I think it's wonderful what you're doing to try and get rid of this culture of owning up to a mistake somehow being humiliating. Let's just push humiliation away. It's not really very helpful. Philippa, lots of women listening to this are going to be parents and who find it so difficult to balance being the, the women that they are and then as a mother going back into the workplace. What worked for you in that? What worked for me was if the other partner took some of the emotional load. Yeah, And by the emotional load, I mean it's not, good enough just to say okay I'll have the kid for the day so you can go to your board meeting or whatever it is they've got to know how to pack a nappy bag mm. <laughs> and so when when we first were negotiating this um, my husband left the house with with Flo and sort of came back about half an hour later in a right temper because of course she'd uh, um, had an accident and he had nothing with him no nappies no wipes <laughs> you know and 
It's remembering when you leave the house that you do need a snack, nappies, wipes, your bus card, your, your zoo pass. It's, it's remembering all of that. And it's not just good enough to be there and being told what to do. You've got to think about what you've got to do as well. So men have got to share the emotional load and the thinking load. It's not just like, tell me what to do and I'll do it, because that's only half of it. We've really got to share it. The only way we're going to have um, working parents at the top is if both parents share the load. And it's really interesting because I think lots of young women do that too late. I mean, I have a young woman who worked for me and, you know, she was getting engaged. And I said, have you spoken with your partner? and said what you're going to expect balance-wise. And she said, no, 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 you know, he's quite happy that he'll take, you know, a few weeks off, you know, a month maybe he'll try and do paternity. I said, no, no, more than that. Have you actually talked about the roles of how this is going to be? And I think so few do that. There is that slight fear to, to really say, listen, I have a life as well and I will want to go back to work. Can you imagine not working, having been a mother who gave up work, which so many still do? Um, I didn't work for two years when I had my daughter. But choice? Was that yeah, your it was choice? Yeah, cho- it was choice. But in order to be who I was, I still needed some me time because otherwise you're 24-7 taken over by someone else's consciousness, basically, mm. when, you're a, when you're a mother. And I had to educate my partner because it's not his fault. It's just that... The, society and the culture doesn't expect men to do this so he would say something like I'm going out now and I would say is it okay if I have a bath Mm. so Mm. then I just looked at our language I don't I didn't say I'm having a bath now but if I did say I'm having a bath now he'd say "Why, why are you telling me I said oh sorry I'll have to rephrase that I'm having a bath now so if the baby wakes up you will be the one responsible for soothing her and seeing what she wants and I had to spell that out a lot and keep spelling it out and keep spelling it out and also had to change I'm going to work now from him to is it okay if I go to work now so we both sort of made sure we were all right with what we were each supposed to be doing and I had to sort of re-educate him but all good to him we didn't really have a fight about it about it he took it on board he did it but I think that so much is taken for granted by men and women about what the roles are and some of us when we do go to work are angry that the men aren't doing it like we would do it or, or the partner, a bit like your story about um, your daughter was in yeah. the purple leggings and that's not how she would have been if you were in charge. Totally. We have to let, let go. go. We have to let but that do, go. Do you know what's interesting? Having given birth to two children and then my wife giving birth to our son, I have been the one who's been the carer straight away, you know, yeah. the baby. And then I found myself being acting just like a bloke. Honestly, what, what, so I'm going to work now yeah. rather than it. is it I okay it. if I go I'm, to work? I and I didn't, you know, think about what nappies we had to order. Oh. I, did you know what? And I kind of knew after a few months I was doing it, but I let it go for another few months because it was heaven. Isn't that bad? It's a difficult. Well, it's a but good I did, thing to I admit. Knew, and I thought, oh, I'm going I'm, I'm to enjoy this. You watch out, because Emily, Emily, you're with child, aren't yeah, you? I'm taking lots of notes because I, I do think that. Well, I think this is so interesting because 
we can put all of these codes into business and we, we've got to have, you know, men supporting and, 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 and paternity leave, which is vital. But really, as women... Mm-hmm. Women, we need to say, no, this is how I want this to work together and yeah. feel strong enough to do that. That's what I'm hearing from you here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got to do that, Emily. I've got a good man, don't you worry. We've uh, already had the conversation. Yeah, yeah, I had a good man. See, this is the difference. I had a good man. I had a good man. I've yeah. got the same man. That's we, went, we went into it open. We was, you know, That was one of the things about having children, of understanding that I will always want to work. So we've already, we're actually, we have a week away in two weeks and we're sitting down and we're using that time to plan out how we think we can do things and how our roles will be. I think this is really so, important to anyone who's listening. Is I, I really do. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what is really important, and I didn't put it in my book, but I think it is in yours, is is that thing that men have to go beyond tell me what to do and I'll do it. Yes. They have to, they have to yes. work out what yeah. it is that needs doing as well. I think when we've stopped thinking that we have to think about everything and we have to be in control of everything domestically then we can be in control of more at work it is so it is a really tough beast this and i think some of the things you kind of were you going to say something no i should say we're running out of time i know but i'm just gonna finish on that because it (laughs) is such a tough beast because you know um as a mother as probably the matriarch in the family i do find myself even remembering oh it's little johnny's birthday you know the nephew i'll get the card and that i just don't know any bloke i've ever been with who's remember that i've got three brothers they're all hopeless i love you but you're bloody hopeless on that you know or it's auntie kathy's birthday or it's the caring thing yeah sort of we'd like men to do a little bit more of this caring stuff yeah, and it's not—it's not in our hormones. It's culturally implanted that we do the caring, and we need to change the culture. And if we put caring into the workplace where there wasn't historically that, I think that's a really good place to start, don't you? I think caring should be as valued as a, a trait in men and in women, as much as being able to add up is. Yeah, Philippa, thank you. No wonder she's a bestseller, right? How good was she? How good? We love you, Philippa. Who have we got next week? Well, next week we have Jude Kelly. Oh, Jude Kelly. Who we also adore. Jude is a brilliant woman um, who puts creativity uh, at the heart of everything she does. She was artistic director at the South Bank for many years, founder of Women of the World Festival. And she's just launched a um, brilliant new thing called Smart Purse that she'll be telling us about. I learned quite a lot on that interview about money. Mm. Women and money, important. Very important. Thank you again uh, for all of your feedback. Um, as Mary said, we've had a lot of emails. Sorry if we can't get back to everyone, but we do read them. Uh, the email address, if you would like to share anything with us, is worklikeawoman at portasagency.com. Uh, please do use our hashtag, worklikeawoman. Subscribe, like, all those things that people tell you to do. That would be really helpful if you could do that. And now, because we love it, Mary, would you give us a quote? Yes, on my way back, I I was reading The Big Issue and there was this interview with this man called James Rousse Evans, who I'd never heard of. He's 91 and he's written a book called Older. He was a theatre director and um, he was just one of the most empathetic, beautiful things I've read and I'd love to meet him. Um, But this is the part of his quote that he wrote that just touched me. In my long life, I've known failure, despair, bleakness, lack of work, lack of money, betrayals and disappointments. And yet, 
at each impasse by learning to be patient, a door has always opened, inviting me to make new discoveries. Isn't that wonderful? Beautiful. And even at 91, he still feels he can make new discoveries. It's never too late. (laughs) We'll see you next week.